Well, good morning. In a few minutes, we're all going to be doing something in common. We're going to take a walk. We're going to walk out the doors to our car. We'll drive to our house or maybe a restaurant. We'll walk into there. Tomorrow, we'll walk into our office, a place of work. We'll walk to a friend's house. We'll walk for exercise. We'll walk into class. Uh, We're all going to take a walk. It's something that we do every day. We take it for granted. Most of us are able to do that. And and it it seems rather simple and mundane, and, and it is. But a walk can change, a simple walk can change the trajectory of of a person's life. When I think about walks, I think of several, and one of the the months that jumps to my mind is the month of May, because I've had a lot of important walks during the month of May. Obviously, there were the graduations three different times, walk across the stage, get a diploma, shake somebody's hand, go celebrate the opportunities in the next stage of life that that walk across that stage provided and opened to me. I think about the month of May, May 12, 1990, when I walked into a small country church in Minnesota as a single man, and I walked out as a married man. Changed my life forever, for the, for the better. I think of uh, different times uh, when my wife and I walked into a hospital, the month of January, the month of May, the month of September, and we walked out with a newborn child. Spiritually speaking, I can think of a couple important walks. One that I took with a good friend when I was in high school, when I was struggling with a lot of doubts and struggles and temptations. And God brought me peace through that conversation through his Holy Spirit. I think of a couple other times when I walked the aisle to publicly declare my faith in Christ. And another time when I when I walked forward and knelt and prayed and kind of said, God, if you want me to be a pastor, if you want me to do ministry, I'll, I'll do it. A simple walk can change the trajectory of a person's life for better or for worse. For example, uh, you can walk into a new building with a new job and it opens up all sorts of new possibilities for you and for your family. Or you can walk into a courtroom when you're facing the consequences of poor choices. You can walk into a room to to confront somebody, to condemn them, to have an argument, to have it out with them, to let them really know what you're thinking and feeling, to get it off your chest. Or you can walk into that room seeking to understand them, seeking to grow in that relationship, seeking to encourage and build up. A walk can change the trajectory of a person's life. Today we are continuing our sermon series, Meals with a Master, which we began just after Labor Day. And we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke and and digging into stories and episodes where Jesus shares a meal with, with people. Sometimes it's in a house Uh, Sometimes it's in the open field, but situations where Jesus shares the meal. Last week we looked at the upper room where Jesus shares the Last Supper and where Jesus is not the guest but the host. And and today we come to a passage which the meal is kind of attached at the end, uh, where Jesus uh, breaks the bread with these two disciples. Their eyes are opened and they, they recognize him. And then Jesus disappears. He doesn't stick around for the main course of dessert, I guess. Uh, But before this meal is shared, uh, we can draw some things about this walk that Jesus has on the Maus Road with these two disciples that we find in Luke 24. And it's the only walk and meal that we're up to this point that we're going to look at. Next week, we'll look at one more where Jesus shares this meal post cross, post resurrection. So let's review. Um, This walk takes place on the first Easter Sunday. It's it's a Sunday, probably it's like afternoon. 
Um, and these two people are walking on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus is about seven miles or so from Jerusalem at the time. So depending on how fast they walked, maybe two to three hours or so. The week for them had began very, very well. Uh, they had been following Jesus. They were his disciples. They'd put their hopes and dreams in him. And their belief was at the beginning of the week that those dreams are going to become true. They're going to be fulfilled. Uh, it began with Jesus riding in on a donkey and the crowds acclaim and claim him and they sing his praises and, and they think everything we've worked for is about to come to fruition. And then it all turns south, turns sour real quickly. When on Thursday night, Jesus is betrayed by a close friend. He's arrested. He undergoes an unfair trial. Uh, he's beaten He's humiliated, he's hung on a cross, he's killed, and then he's buried. And they're heartbroken. And they begin to disperse. And so these two are walking back to Emmaus, no doubt devastated, their minds spinning, wondering how could, it, how could have things changed so quickly. They're probably processing their feelings and their thoughts and as often happens when something goes wrong in a person's life, you begin to think, as part of the grieving process, you begin to bargain, what if? What if we'd done this? What if we hadn't done this? What if Jesus had run away in the garden? What if we had stood up for him? Maybe we could have fought off his arresters. What if Jesus had saved himself like he did so many other people? What if? So as they were walking along processing this, Jesus comes alongside them, it says. He begins to walk with them and travel with them. But the scripture says that they didn't recognize him, that they're kept from seeing who he is. And then in verse 17, there begins a series of three questions before anybody makes a statement. Jesus begins in verse 17. What are you discussing together as you walk along? Now, he knew, right? He knew what they were talking about, but... He, as he so often did when he met with people, he begins with a question. Jesus did a lot of listening. He begins with a question. He's trying to get them to open up, to express their feelings. He wants to, he wants to guide them to the truth. Reminds me of the days when I was in youth ministry. Often what we would tell our, our volunteer leaders was something along like this. Never tell a youth something that you can lead him or her to discover on their own. Why? Because it, they, it makes it their own. It's, it's, they, they buy into it. They, they make it their own. It's important. and It becomes a part of who they are. So Jesus begins with this question. What are you discussing together as you walk along? And then one of the disciples responds to Jesus' question. And I'm going to paraphrase here in verse 18. He essentially says, have you been living under a rock? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you really don't know what's happened to Jesus. You really don't know what's happened in Jerusalem these past few days. And Jesus doesn't really answer. He, he kind of plays dumb and he says, what things? Tell me about it. What, what have you been talking about? What's, what's going on? Now, it, it sort of would have been like how they might have been thinking. It sort of been like if after 9-11, you're walking around a day or two later around town and, and you see all these flags. You see a lot of them are flying at half-mast. And you approach somebody and say, hey, what's, what's all this? What's been going on? I don't, I don't get it. And, and they would kind of look at you like, really? You don't, 
have you not been watching the news? Have you turned on the radio, the internet? Nothing? Do you not know what's going on? So Jesus asked what things, and the disciple begins to answer Jesus' question. And, and it's interesting, we can draw some things about his perspective because of how he answers. Look at verses 19 through 21. And in these verses, he lists all the things that Jesus was, okay, past tense. He says, we've been talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He was. In other words, he let us down. He disappointed us. It didn't turn out the way we thought it was going to be. We're disillusioned. It's over. It's done. For them, Jesus' death was the exclamation point at the end of three years. It's over. It's irreversible. It's finished. They had wanted to be redeemed. But in sort of a political sense, if you think about it. They were partly right. Jesus did come to redeem, but he didn't come to redeem it the way that they expected him to or wanted him to. Jesus provided a redemption, a freedom that was far greater than mere political freedom and autonomy. Jesus came to redeem people, to set men and women free from the two most enslaving powers in life. The power of sin and the power of death. And Jesus did that through his death and resurrection on our behalf for us. But before we criticize these disciples for missing a point and embracing this wrong conception of of how Jesus was going to redeem, let's acknowledge this truth about ourselves in a very real sense we can still look for the wrong kind of redeemer. We can have the wrong expectations of Jesus. I mean, we all want a redeemer. We all want someone to solve our problems. We all want someone to help us deal with the consequences of our sin, even if we still persist in it. In short, we don't want to pay the price of being a true disciple. We still want to have some say in our lives. But the truth is that Jesus Christ does not set us free from the power of sin in our lives today until we yield to him as our master and our Lord. So since these two disciples were kind of missing the point, Jesus then does something. He comes alongside them and he opens the scripture to them. And he begins to to show them that the events of this past week that they thought had gone so wrong had actually happened just the way they were supposed to. In fact, just the way that they had been predicted for hundreds of years throughout the Scripture. And so Jesus takes them to the Old Testament Scriptures, it says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and he explains to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. And so I have no doubt that Jesus took them from Genesis to Malachi and pointed them to scriptures like in Isaiah 7 and 9 where it says he'll be born of a virgin. And he probably took them to places like uh, in Micah 5 where it says that he would be, hundreds of years before he was born, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Passages showed that he would come from the line of David, and he did. Passages that would show that he would, how he would die, that he'd be pierced by a sword. And, and, and Isaiah 53 and, and Psalm 18, and, so, excuse me, Psalm 22. 
and how he'd be betrayed by a friend and how he would ride into, into Jerusalem on a donkey. Over and over, Jesus would have taken them to these Old Testament scriptures and said, no, 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 you're missing it. This is exactly how it was supposed to happen. This is how the Messiah was to be and what he was to do and how he's going to die. This is why he came. And all of it had been on paper for hundreds of years, but somehow they missed it. Because they had based their expectations of the Messiah on something other than Scripture. And at this point, I want to make a second point, a second truth that we can draw from this. Is that the Bible, the Scripture, the Word of God is and has always been used to guide us, to guide people to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, God himself took the time to very carefully prepare a a written guide, this book, for you and me to lead us out of darkness to the only true source of light and life. As John, the Apostle John wrote in chapter 20, verse 31, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing have life in his name. So after Jesus opens the scriptures to them on this walk, they arrive at Emmaus. And these two walkers, these two disciples, don't want this conversation with this intriguing stranger to end. And so they invite him in for dinner. And they gather some food and they sit down to eat and they ask, as was awesome, often customary, they ask this stranger, they ask Jesus to pray. And, and Jesus takes the bread and he prays and he breaks it. Their eyes are open. They see that this is really, this is Jesus, the one they've been talking about. And then he disappears. And the truth we can pull out of this part of the story is that Jesus Christ walks the road of life with us at every step of the way. I mean, these two disciples thought Jesus was gone for good and they were grieving. They were overwrought. They thought that would define their lives. But Jesus comes alongside them and they find out that that is not true. That their grief and their pain and their loss and their hurt, their disappointment did not have to be the last word. And I've got to say that when I've gone through some tough things in my life, either because I've made poor choices or because something's happened to me that I've had nothing to do with outside my control, I have discovered that that's when I most powerfully sense God's presence, Christ's presence with me. Isaiah 43, 1 says, When you walk through the waters, I will be with you, for I am the Lord your God. The good news of the cross is that Jesus Christ was forsaken on the cross so, but, so that you and I would not ever have to be. Never will I leave you, Jesus promised. Never will I forsake you. He walks with us through the journey of life. Old Testament professor Adam Welch, uh, they used to begin his classes with prayer, and he grew weary of his students beginning like this, Oh God, we come into your presence. And so one Monday morning at the class, he led the time of prayer and said, Oh God, we do not come into your presence, for we are never anywhere else. That's true. And so we look at this story and I hope you will see that Jesus Christ is with you on the Emmaus roads of your life. That you're never alone. The fourth and last thing I want to pull out of this story deals with the response of these two disciples after they encounter Jesus Christ and they understand who he is and their eyes are opened. It's this, that time spent with Jesus should lead us to share our faith in Christ with others. So these two disciples have just walked seven miles 
And scripture tells us they turn around and immediately head back to Jerusalem. Seven miles back, my guess is this time they didn't walk. They probably ran. They went back to, to tell the disciples, the rumors out there are true. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We have met him and we have talked with him. And he showed us all this stuff in scripture. Anybody who meets Christ in that way discovers it's too good of news to keep to themselves. Charles Swindoll recounts a true story as told by a doctor friend of his, Dr. Phillips, about one of his favorite patients, an old widow lady named Edith Burns. And Edith had this wonderful habit of when she would meet somebody, she would say, hello, I'm Edith Burns. Do you believe in Easter? And then she'd go on to explain the meaning of Easter, and often people would come to faith in Christ. And then one day she went to see the doctor, and Dr. Phillips told her with, with great sorrow on his face that, that her test results revealed the presence of an aggressive cancer and that she had not very long to live. And her response was, don't be sad. Do you think God makes mistakes? You've just told me I'm going to see my precious Lord, my husband, and many of my friends. You've just told me that I'm going to a place where I can celebrate Easter forever. And you're having a hard time giving giving me my ticket? Within a few weeks, she reached a point where she had to be hospitalized, and she asked Dr. Phillips to arrange so that she would have non-Christian roommates so she could explain the true meaning of Easter to them. And so as a result, several women left that hospital as Christians, and, and several of the workers, unsaved nurses and orderlies, also made decisions to follow Christ. In fact, it came to the place where pretty much everybody on the floor had become a Christian except for the head nurse, a woman named Phyllis Cross. And Phyllis wanted nothing, absolutely nothing to do with her faith. She'd been a nurse in the army. She had seen it all. She'd heard it all. She'd been married three times. She did everything by the book, coldly efficient. And one morning as Phyllis gave Edith a shot, Edith said, Phyllis, God loves you. I love you too, and I'm praying for you. Phyllis said, well, you can quit praying for me. It won't work. I'm not interested. Well, I will pray, and I have asked God to not let me go to heaven until you come into the family. Well, then you're never going to die because that will not happen. (laughs) And every day when Phyllis walked into Edith's room, Edith would smile and say something like, God loves you, Phyllis. I love you too. I'm praying for you. And after weeks of this, they began to become friends. And then one day, Phyllis found herself drawn for some reason into Edith's room. And she sat down on the side of the bed and said, Edith, you've asked everyone on this ward the question, do you believe in Easter? But you've never asked me. Edith said, I wanted to many times, but God told me to wait until you asked me. So, and she opened her Bible and she shared with Phyllis the story of Christ, the Easter story. She told him about his death, his life, his resurrection. And then Phyllis bowed her head and prayed to receive Christ. A few days later on Easter Sunday morning, Phyllis went into Edith's room to bring some flowers and she found her dead. And her big black Bible was still open on her lap and there's a big smile on her face. And she noticed that Edith had been reading it because her left hand rested on John 14. Where Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that you can be where I am also. And Edith's right hand was on 
another passage from Revelation 21.4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And Phyllis took one look at her dead body and lifted her face to heaven and said, Happy Easter, Edith. And then she left the room and she walked quietly over to two new nurses and said, Hello, my name is Phyllis Cross. Do you believe in Easter? That's the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? When we meet Jesus Christ, when we walk with him, when he opens the scriptures to us, when we understand who he is, what he's done for us, who he wants to be to us. We tell somebody. We share that good news with other people. You know, in the early days of, of the kind of the, the covenant movement uh, back in, in Sweden in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there were two foundational questions that were asked as they did life together. In matters of theology and practice and belief and doctrine and conduct, the question was, where is it written? Where is it written in Scripture? It served the purpose of, of helping people to be centered in Scripture, looking for and applying God's truth. The second question was, how's your walk? How's your walk with Jesus Christ? Because they understood that faith, being a Christian, was more than a decision. It was more than a simple affirmation of something. It was more than going to church and avoiding bad things and doing good things, that it was about a relationship with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, that it was a lifelong journey, a conversation. It was a walk, something we do every day, a walk that was to change one's life for now and for eternity. And so I want to conclude with this simple question. How is your walk? Do you sense Christ's presence with you? Are you walking with him? For him? Toward him? Is your walk grounded and sourced in God's word? Or are you stuck? Are you paused? Maybe you've turned and begun to walk away. Perhaps maybe because of disappointments, hurt, pain, disillusionment, doubts, temptations, simple apathy. How's your walk with Jesus? He wants to walk with you. He wants to forgive you and strengthen you, to help you, to guide you. He calls you to, to break bread and dine with him, both now on this earth, but also in the future in heaven. And so the question I leave you with is, will you walk with Jesus Christ? You don't have to be perfect. None of us are. You won't do it consistently. None of us do. But will you commit yourself to walk with Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your scripture. We thank you for this story where Jesus comes along people who have doubts, who are hurting, or disappointed, maybe even angry, confused. 
where Jesus comes alongside them and walks with them, asks them questions, draws them out, explains the gospel to them through the scriptures, and then breaks bread with them. Father, I pray for each person here, regardless of where they come from when they walked came from when they walked into these doors. I pray if they have doubts that you would strengthen them and reveal yourself to them. I pray that if they are confused, that you would open their eyes to your truth and guide them. I pray, Lord, that if they are apathetic and caught up in the things of the world, Lord, that you would stir them up and loosen the grip that those things have on them. If they have an earnest desire to know your truth and to know you. If they walk into this place with shame or guilt, I pray, Lord, that you would lift those burdens from them and give them your peace and joy. If they are grieving, Lord, bring them your peace and comfort. Lord, we thank you for the truth of this story, that you walk with us. You come alongside us, that you'll never leave us and forsake us. We offer ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. We commit ourselves to walking with you. Amen.